Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. All right, friends, go ahead and turn with me to Romans 2. We'll be in verses 1 through 11. Romans 2, 1 through 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Turn there, we will dig right in. So what's happened is in Genesis chapter 1, Paul has made this really strong argument that humans are responsible before God. And he's done that by kind of showing this chain of sin that kind of creates a case for human culpability. We're all culpable before God. We first start out by suppressing the knowledge of God. So we suppress the truth. And then that leads to sin. That sin leads to more sin. And then the deeper we go into sin, we suddenly get to this place where we're not only suppressing the truth, but we're actually now trumpeting what is not true. We're we're approving what is evil. And Paul does this crazy thing where he, he walks from the beginning of this down through the chain and he starts by suppressing sin, right? And then he shows that God turns us over as a result of that, right? It says that God turns us over. He gave us up to dishonorable passions, right? And then or the dishonoring of our bodies, and then for this reason, right, dishonoring our bodies, God now gives us up to dishonorable passions, committing shameless acts, and receiving in ourselves a due penalty for our error. And then he says, because of 
not seeing fit to acknowledge God, he now gives us up to a debased mind. And you would think that at this point we're going to get to the like very worst, craziest sins you ever heard of, right? We've already looked at defiling our bodies by doing things that shouldn't even be named. We've already looked at the kinds of sins that we look at and we're like, whoa, that's really bad. But now Paul, when he gets to the real bad stuff, he moves past the sexual sin. He moves past the sexual perversion. He moves past the, the sins that are the result of other sins, right? And now he gets to the climax and listen to what he starts to describe. As the real climax, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander. Do any of those sins sound familiar? They sound like the kind of stuff that normal everyday Christians do, don't they? We have evil thoughts. We slander others. We gossip. We're malicious in our hearts. We envy. We disobey our parents. Man. So, so this is what people who are religious, this is the kind of sins that religious people can fall into. And this is the climax. But what Paul is doing, check this out, he's preparing his audience, right? He, he started off with, hey, I, you know you're going to agree with me about this. This is some really bad stuff, isn't it? Men laying with men, women laying with women, that's pretty bad, right? And then he, he ups the ante and he says, well, what about envy, strife, maliciousness, gossip? So now if you're in the first audience, you're kind of like stepping back a little, kind of, well, I'm already in, he's already got me, so I've got to kind of go along with him here. And now when we get to chapter 2, he's going to really... He's going to really drop the hammer. Here's what he's going to say. Look at verse 1 here. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So what Paul's trying to get across here is that, look, culpability is universal culpability is universal and he's not saying here that it's because of judging that you're condemned no he's saying it's because of sin that you're condemned and by judging you acknowledge that yourself right it's not because of judging that you're condemned it's because of sin and in judging you acknowledge that you're condemned because of your sin and here's the deal, we have all sinned even by our own standard of what is right and wrong. Even if you delete the Ten Commandments, even if you delete the Law of Moses, even if you delete the Bible from your memory, you know that by your very own standard of what's right and wrong, you have done wrong just in that standard. So none of us is innocent. Even in our own eyes, none of us is innocent, if we're honest. And this is why we read this story of David today, because this weird thing happens with David where he commits this sin, but he's completely blind to it because he's blinded by his power. He's completely blinded by his circumstances. 
He thinks that he doesn't have to yield to the same laws that other people have to yield to. And so he commits this terrible act where he takes the wife of this person who doesn't have a lot of wives like David. He doesn't have access to the whole kingdom like David. He doesn't have a harem like David. No, he has one wife. And David sees her from a distance and says, look, not just all of these women that I have do I want, but I want that one woman that you have, this woman that you prize, I want her. And so he takes her for himself. And then God reveals this to the prophet Nathan, and Nathan comes and he tells a little story. And what's he do? He baits David into judging the person in the story, doesn't he? He, he, he says, David, look, there's this guy that had a whole bunch of sheep. It wasn't good enough for him, and he stole the one sheep of this one person who would just loved his sheep, right? What do you think about that? And David's like, kill him! <laughs> Whoever did it deserves to die right now. Right? And then, then Nathan says, well, if you say so, but I'm talking about you, king. Right? And so Paul's, Paul's sort of using the same move here with his audience. He's, he's, he's baited these people into judgment. He's baited them into saying, yes, this is sin. Yes, all humans are culpable. And now he's saying, it's you. It's you who are culpable. And the reason that he's doing this is because he's dealing with a wrong theology. He's fighting against a theology that holds up this idea that if you're biologically descended from Abraham, your pathway to acceptance from God is different from the pathway of all the rest of humanity. You're not culpable for your sin, but because you're biologically descended from Abraham, your sin is automatically, automatically forgiven. You're, you're good to go just because of your biological identity that there's some sort of special pathway of forgiveness for the Jewish people that's different from all the rest of humanity and so Paul is saying that's absolutely not true and for those of you who were raised up in different denominations you might have been taught this because there's kind of a there's kind of a continuum of how to think about the Bible and if, if you were raised in more of a dispensational church you might have been taught that the, there's two different ways that God deals with people. He has one way of dealing with the nation of Israel, and then he has another way of dealing with everybody else. And the nation of Israel gets the Old Testament covenant, and everybody else gets the New Testament covenant. So Jesus had to die for all, everybody else, but God's law and God's promises to Abraham are just enough on their own as long as you're biologically related to Abraham. You're part of the nation of Israel. Well, what Paul is saying is like, this is bad theology. Paul's saying this is not reality. Because he's already said in chapter 1, what happens? All of these good things come first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And all the bad things come first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And he's going to say the same thing here. Judgment comes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. But right here he's telling us that all humans, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter if you're pagan, it doesn't matter if you're... Uh, Greek, all humans are culpable before God. Culpability is universal. So what's next? Then he wants us to see that not only is culpability universal, but God's judgment 
of us, since we're culpable, is based on the truth. Based on the truth. Look, look at verse 2 here. We know that the judgment of God rightly or in truth falls on those who practice such things. And what he's talking about practicing such things, he's talking about verses, you know, 28 through 32 above. All, all these sins, right, that, that seem like they're kind of not as bad as the ones that were mentioned before. But, you know, they're still pretty bad, but not as bad as those other ones. But he says that the wrath of God falls on the people who do that. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, if we continue to sin, if we continue to sin knowing, knowing what God has required of us, do we really think that God's not going to judge us? That God's not going to repay us for that? And then he says, look, the reason that we would think that is that we don't know that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance, right, from the Psalms. And this is also reminiscent of some of the literature that was written in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You could call that intertestamental literature. There's a book called Wisdom, and it seems like Paul is kind of interacting with that. Not because he thinks of it as scripture, but because he thinks of it as well known to his audience, right? Something that he can sort of interact with them with. Kind of like if I were to quote a Christian author in here. I wouldn't do that because that person is scripture. I would do that because it's still the truth, and we recognize that, right? So Paul's doing the same thing with this literature that was known to his Jewish audience. He's kind of playing devil's advocate here. He's asking them questions to help them see and, and agree that they're culpable before God. And he says, look, because, because you don't want to repent, because you don't want to turn away from sin, you're actually storing up. And this is the word that usually is used in reference to the final day of bliss. Right? When, when God rewards us, we're storing up treasures, we're storing up good things. But Paul turns it on his head here and says, because you don't repent, you're storing up okay. You're storing up wrath. You're storing up for yourself wrath for the day when God's judgment will be revealed by not repenting. He's already, he said this is true of Gentiles in chapter 1. And now he's making the case this is true not just of Gentiles, but also of Israel. Also of those of Jewish descent. Also of the children of Abraham by blood. If we don't place our faith in Christ, if we don't repent, then we're just storing up judgment because you know you're culpable. Every single one of you is guilty of something on the list that I just got done reading. Have you guys ever seen Cutthroat Kitchen? Anybody seen that show? I used to watch it all the time. It's been a while. I kind of forgot it existed. But in Cutthroat Kitchen, what happens is you've got these contestants and 
You've got to please Alton Brown with your cooking, first of all. But not only that, you have a certain allotment of cash. And with your cash, you can buy obstacles to throw at your opponents. So you can make them cook into a tiny kitchen that's only, you know, two by two or something like that. Or you can make them cook with one hand tied behind their back. Or you can make them cook while they're wearing a giant chicken costume. There's all kinds of different things you can make them do. But you have to use your money to do that. And one of the strategies that you'll see is that people will store up their money, right? They'll kind of try to survive the early rounds so that when it gets to the final round, they've got all their cash laid up and they can just start pouring obstacles on their opponents. Are you with me? It's kind of like that thing is happening here. It's that, but instead of pouring out these obstacles on other people, we're actually pouring them out on ourselves by not trusting in Jesus, by not repenting of our sin, by having an impenitent heart and the reality is that God's judgment is true listen to what it says we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things and then Paul asks these questions and he's asking these questions to sort of engage with his imaginary audience right and what he's trying to do is to lead them to say yes to these things or to say no to these things but to agree with his point so that they'll actually join him in recognizing that God's judgment is coming and then he's going to move down to this next paragraph starting in verse 6 it says he will render to each one according to his works now let's break that down in terms of its parts uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner helped kind of shed light on this, and we need to pay attention to it. First of all, he will render, right? In other words, he will repay. So it's absolutely the case that God will repay sin. Think about Galatians chapter 6. It's the same sort of deal that Nick read for us today, that our lives will bring about the recompense of God or the reward of God. He will reward us according to our works, without a doubt, whether for judgment or for a good reward. That's the first thing. Number two, so he will reward. The second thing is he will reward to each. So every single one of us, no matter what kind of person you are, no matter what your background is, no matter how you think about yourself, we'll all be rewarded according to our works. And here's the third thing, according to what? Works. So Paul is saying that judgment is going to have to do with our works. Now, if you're like me, there's some problems here, right? I, I don't like to hear about works. I've, I've got a pretty tight theology that allows me to feel like I don't have to worry about my works. And I've told you guys many times, when we are standing before God in judgment, if works come up, right, what are we going to do? We're going to dodge the question and we're going to point to Jesus, right? We're not going to talk to God about our works. We're going to say, Lord, I, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about Jesus, right? That's what he's instructed us. That's what God has said, look, like, don't come before me talking about yourself. Don't come before me pointing to the, the good things. That you've done. Don't come before me telling me how good you are. No, come before me telling me how desperately you need my son Jesus. Because that's who I'm proud of. That's who I'm excited about. That's who has pleased me. That's who has obeyed me. Point to Jesus. And here we have Paul 
coming around, sneaking up in my theology, talking about works again. I don't like it. You guys like it? I don't like it. I don't want him to do that. But he does it here. And, and we're going to see exactly what it is that he has to say. He says, first of all, he will repay everyone according to his works. That's the part I don't like. Then he says, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. And this is where we get more echoes of Galatians chapter 6, right? Did you hear that in the passage that Nick read? Be patient in well-doing, right? We're, that's, that's the Galatians thing. He will give eternal life, but for those who are self-seeking and do not, watch this, obey what? Do not obey what? The truth. But obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. Isn't that a strange way to say it? Not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Wouldn't you expect Paul to say, not obey the law, but obey unrighteousness? Wouldn't you expect Paul to say, not obey righteousness, but obey unrighteousness? You wouldn't expect Paul to contrast truth with unrighteousness, right? Like those aren't, they're not perfect opposites. The opposite of unrighteousness is what? Righteousness. The opposite of truth is what? Falsehood. So how do we obey the truth? What does that even mean? The truth is two plus two is four. How do we obey that? The truth is that the earth revolves around the sun. How do we obey that, right? The truth is that Jesus rose from the dead. How do we obey that? The truth is that God created the world. How do we obey that? Do you see the problem? How do you obey the truth? The truth is that you're six foot four. How do you obey that, Ben? I don't know. Maybe you don't get in a car that only has headroom for somebody that's five foot eight, right? The way that you obey the truth is by believing it and living your life in accordance with it, right? So the obedience to the truth is what? It's the same thing that Paul talked about in chapter 1. It's the righteousness that comes through faith. And look at what he says here. Those who what? They, by patience and well-doing, they seek for glory. Whose glory? God's glory. And honor. Whose honor? God's honor. And immortality. Where does this come from? From faith in Christ. Right? So I think what Paul's saying is that to those who by patience and well-doing trust in Christ, he will give eternal life. And, and I want to nuance this in just a second. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. So there's two things going on here. The first one is this, that faith really is righteousness. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that faith really is works, right? I'm saying that faith really is righteousness. God, God is not lying to us 
when he counts us righteous on the basis of faith. Well, this is what God really cares about because faith is how we empty ourselves of self-reliance, right? And fill ourselves with reliance upon God. That's why faith is the instrument of salvation because faith is by definition dependence. That's what faith means. We're placing our faith in what? In God. So we're fully dependent upon him. And here's, here's the next piece, and this is where we're really going to have to bear down on how we understand the Christian life. Real faith leads to real righteousness. Real faith leads to real righteousness. If you remember in Hebrews, what, what, is, what is the warning that's given to us over and over and over again? You're following Jesus, you're running after Jesus, and what's the warning? Don't stop doing that. You're holding on to Jesus, you're holding on to the faith, and what's the warning? Don't let go, right? You're, you're walking a straight path, you're going in the right direction, and what's the warning? Don't wander off, right? That's the exact same thing that Paul's saying here. To those who buy patience in well-doing, right? To those who hold on. To those who continue, your perseverance is instrumental in your final salvation. It's made possible by the grace of God. It's made, it's made sure by the grace of God. But you have to persevere. For God shows no partiality. Bottom line, all works will be repaid. And so what do we do? What do Christians do? Well, the first thing is this. Don't judge. Don't hold grudges. Be quick to forgive. Don't judge. Don't hold grudges. Be quick to forgive. Why? Because this passage makes it abundantly clear. Check this out. Every sin will come under the wrath of God. Every sin will come under the wrath of God. Every sinner will come under the wrath of God. So everyone who sins against you, their sin will be punished. And that's absolute truth. Every sin that's ever been committed will be punished. Either it's already been laid upon Jesus. Man, do you, wanna, do you want to punish someone for a sin that Jesus was already punished for? Right? Do, do you want to like take a one-to-one -one correspondence? Jesus died for this sin of this person, and now you want to punish them again? Do you want to make Jesus death? Do you want to make Jesus suffering meaningless in that case? Look, every sin has either already been paid for by the suffering death of Jesus Christ, or it will be paid for in eternal judgment. There's never been a sin. There will never be a sin that doesn't fall into one of those two categories. So we're either trying to punish in advance someone who's going to be punished for eternity. Or we're trying to punish for a sin that Jesus has already bled for. Why would, why would we want to do either one of those things? Why would we want to heap punishment on someone who's going to suffer for eternity? And why would we want to double down on punishment that Jesus Christ has already borne. So don't, don't judge. Don't hold a grudge. 
Be quick to forgive. And here's, here's the next thing. Cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Your sin is real. And his mercy is more real. Look, Paul's already said it in chapter 1. Gentiles are culpable for their sin. Why? Because, because we know what God requires just on the basis of nature. And then in chapter 2, Jews are culpable for their sin. Why? Because not only do you have that same understanding of what God's revealed through nature, but you also have God's special revelation through the law. It's clear. So we're all culpable. We're all culpable for our sin. So cling to Jesus because the only thing more real than our sin is the grace that's available in Jesus Christ. I love that song that we sing every once in a while. I, what love, right? What love could remember no wrongs we have done? What kind of love does that? What love could remember no wrongs that we've done? Omniscient all, knowing he counts not, it's some. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. I love that. No bottom, no shore. Just boundless, endless sea. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So cling to Jesus and watch him. Watch him produce in you. Check this out. Watch him produce in you the works. The works that will vindicate his word at the final judgment. His word vindicates you. You're made righteous by your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, 100%. And watch this. Jesus' word, the gospel, in the final day will be vindicated by the works that Jesus produces in your life. Watch him do that. As you cling to him, watch him form you into a person who lives in such a way that you bring glory and honor Christ. He'll do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth that you are impartial, that you will judge all of us according to our works, that all of us will stand in judgment to give an account for